0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, everybody doing all right this morning? Great. One person is. Let's, let's go with it. Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be, so if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Mark 5... That will definitely serve you this morning to have that out and open on your lap. And while you're turning there, let me just cover a little bit of family business. Uh, If you have been with us over the last, you know, year uh, as our church family has just grown and all that, you you know that we've been, the last six months especially, has been a whirlwind. And so uh, we have recently bought a piece of property, 23 acres, on the northeast corner of Walnut Grove and 287. Uh, so we have closed on that. All that's good to go. And then uh, back in April, we began a three-month season of generosity. And I wanted to give you an update on that, on where we landed with all that, and uh, just so you would be, you know, in, in the know. So what we ended up coming in uh, over those three months at right about five hundred thousand dollars, just right below, it, which is something to celebrate. That is a great thing over that three-month period, to uh, for God to have graced us with that. And so. Uh, I am so appreciative and so thankful, humbled, all of that, that God is working in those sort of ways around us. So in light of that, I wanted just to give you three kind of things uh, leading out of that season and kind of into the future and where we are. Uh, first of all, for those who really got before God and asked the hard questions like, God, what would it look like for me right now to exercise more faith in regards to generosity than in any other season in my life? like this three-month season, to stretch my faith like that. I just want to say thanks for that and thanks for your generosity and thanks for asking those hard questions. And on the other side of that, I couldn't be more excited about how God is going to use those sort of faith-stretching moments for us and for you, um, for your good along the way. And so I want to say thanks, uh, first of all, for that. And then secondly, I want to just make sure that we all see clearly when we look down the road that we've talked about the whole conference center cliff thing that, uh, you know, within a couple of years, we're going to have to make that leap. And so for you just to be thinking in, in regards to the next two to three years of your life, like thinking in big ways about what generosity would look like for you over this season, like the next three years really set the trajectory for the rest of our church family's life together in regards to kind of finances, debt, all of those things down the road. And so we just want to encourage you to do that, to get before God, praying over that, considering in light of our church family being in that situation over the next three years, what does that mean and look like for, for my family and for your family? And and then lastly, I want to make sure that we take moments like this to stop and to celebrate how good God has been to our church. And so I I think one of the uh, tendencies that probably most of us have in the room is not to like stop and smell the roses when we should. And when you think about where we are, uh, you know, we're going to turn four years old next month. God has been so extremely gracious to us that it is beyond words to describe that. He has worked around us in such incredible ways for us in such incredible ways. And so I want to remind you of that. Like our church family is right now the recipient of great grace from God. And it would do us well, all of us well, to sit in that, to breathe that in, to thank God for that, celebrate that, rejoice in that, that God has smiled really favorably upon us. And with that, I want to encourage you to be praying for our church family as we move forward and as kind of the next, you know, steps and all this progress, that you're praying that God would uh, keep us unified, he would keep wolves out, he would protect our church family, that he would continue to extend a lot of grace and mercy and favor toward us. So all that to say, I just want to make sure you are up to date in uh, in the world of our church family and uh, where we are. So Mark chapter 5, let me preface Mark 5 by uh, by kind of leading in with a huge big biblical question. It is a big question to ask in the Bible, Why did Jesus come? Now the Bible takes great care in answering that question well. This is why if you read the New Testament, you'll see 15 or 16 expressions to describe the answer to that question. So as a, for instance, in 1 John 3, 8, uh, John says this, that Jesus came for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That one of the reasons Jesus came, like one way of describing this is saying he came to take back ground that the devil has taken, that Satan has taken. So that's that's one reason. In in John 10, 10, John says it this way, um, and this is the words of Jesus, that Jesus is saying, I have come that you might have life and life to the full. That's interesting. Jesus is saying that there is a way that you can operate and do life in which you are just existing, and apart from Jesus, the best you can do is exist. But in Jesus, you can go from existing on this planet to actually living on this planet. Like, that God, Jesus enables that sort of transformation of a life from existing to living. So he says, that, that's the reason I've come. So people could actually live, could, could like actually live like God has intended them to live. But in answering that question, one thing the Bible will not let you escape from is this answer. So, so in the 15 or 16 expressions of why Jesus came, the Bible pounds this in over and over again, that Jesus came to save sinners, of which you and I are. That Jesus came to save sinners. You remember this is like uh, Luke chapter 19. Jesus has just dealt with Zacchaeus, the dirty tax collector guy, just rescued and redeemed Zacchaeus, and, and he makes this clear to everyone. This is the reason I've came. I've come. To seek and save the lost. That's why I'm here. That's what I'm doing. I am seeking and saving lost people, just like Zacchaeus, the dirty tax collector. Later on in Mark's gospel, Jesus clarifies it to his disciples when he says, Listen, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and to give my life away as a ransom for many. That's why I'm here, to seek and save the lost, for the good of sinners who are in great need of salvation. Paul in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1 is looking back over the life of Jesus, and he wants to make sure the New Testament church is absolutely clear on why Jesus came. So he says it this way, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Like this is what Jesus is about. The Bible will not let us answer the question, why did Jesus come and, and not include that in it? That he came to save men and women from their sin, the penalty of their sin, from the wrath of God. This is why he came. Now I know of no better place in the Bible than Mark chapter five, one through 20, to see evidence that that is actually true. That what Jesus said he came for actually plays out in the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20 is a beautiful example of those words being true. It's the substance behind those words. So if you're looking down at those 20 verses, let me just kind of give the context and then we'll jump into it. Let me make sure you're seeing kind of the setting of of these 20 verses in Mark 5. When you think about the life and ministry of Jesus, it was primarily directed to Jewish people. He's really clear throughout his life and ministry that I have come, he's saying, primarily for Jewish people. And then it's going to spread to the ends, of the, in, you know, the ends of the world. But I have come, he's saying, to Jewish people. So his ministry is in and out of synagogues, in and out of Jewish areas, Jewish cities. His ministry is, is 99% right there. But there's this interesting moment that happens at the end of Mark 4 in verse 34, where he looks at his disciples and said, let's get in a boat and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the other side of the Sea of Galilee is like a different world. See, this side of the Sea of Galilee, where he is right now, is Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. It's where your synagogues are, your religious people are, where your Jewish people are. But when he gets in a boat and says, let's go to the other side, the other side is Gentile area pagan area, irreligious people area. So this side is Jewish. He gets in the boat and says other side. He is saying something really big. We're going to leave Jewish world for a minute, and we are going to hop into Gentile world. Now if you were here last week, you know that it was an eventful boat ride over, right? So uh, a hurricane comes up. The disciples think they're about to die. Jesus gets up, and literally with two Greek words, the storm subsides. It goes away. The, the wind and waves are dealt with. They're rebuked. They're, they're gone. Probably one of the most incredible human feats that has ever been done at any time on planet Earth right there in Luke 4. So uh, he quiets the storm. So they go, go, you know, they're on their way to the other side. They get to the other side. He steps foot onto dry land and he is confronted with, in the Bible one of the worst characters that you will see. Like this guy in, in in mark 5 is at the top of the list of like bad boys in the bible he, he is right up there at the top he's confronted with this guy that is uh, a demonized and he rebukes the demon casts the demon out saves and heals this guy gets right back in the boat and goes back over to the jewish world you, you see what's happening he in jewish world a boat ride over steps out 20 verses heals the guy gets back in the boat goes right back over So I think it just begs the question, what is going on? Big picture, 30,000 foot view. What is going on in this passage? And let me just give you a quick answer to that and then we'll dissect it. The quick answer for what is going on goes back to the end of Mark chapter 4. At the end of Mark 4, the disciples ask this huge question after Jesus has rebuked the storm. They ask the question that goes like this. Who in the world is this guy that can do that? Who is that guy? Now Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20, is trying to answer the question, who is that guy with that sort of power? And here's the answer Mark 5 gives. This guy with that sort of power is the guy, like that sort of like, calm the storm, incredible feet, that sort of power is the same guy that would step foot in a boat, sail to a foreign territory to heal a guy like you and me. He's that sort of a guy that has that sort of power combined with this sort of love and mercy and grace. It is like Luke 19 in story form. I've come to to save, like seek and save the lost. It is that verse in story form, these these 20 verses. Okay, so with that said, uh, here's my hope for you today. My hope is that, you know, we're going to kind of walk through this story together. And my hope is that this will be a morning for you where you get to sit in your seat, and you get to drink deeply of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where you get to inhale a big breath of gospel air into your lungs. This is my hope for you. And that that will then produce some certain fruit that we're going to get to at the end of this thing. So uh, let, let me kind of lead into to this passage and set it up by saying, or by kind of pointing out, if you've watched TV uh, and, and if you've seen like the advertisement for the latest and greatest new diet program, you, you've seen one of those sort of things, P98, whatever. The, like, the next latest, greatest diet going to get you into shape sort of a thing. You know how they advertise these things. They all do the same thing. They do the before and after shot. You know what I'm talking about? So the, b- before, uh, the before shot is the guy that is really sloppy, you know. I mean, he's got like chest hair that's nine inches long. You're like, is that a human being or a silverback gorilla? What, what is that guy? You know, I mean, we're going to be way overweight. And then it goes to the after picture and the dude's got a shaved chest, a six pack. I mean, he is put together in the after, right? So, so it's this before and after shot. So here's what I want to do to set this passage up is I want to give you a before and after shot of this demonized guy that we are introduced to in Mark 5. So here is the, the before. So we're going to answer the question. What is this guy like before Jesus? What, what is he like before him? And listen, the Bible is going to go into great detail in explaining and describing this guy. And it's for a reason. The Bible wants us to see really clearly right off the bat that this guy is at the top of like The bad list, the messed up list in the Bible. I would even say it this way. I think you could read through Genesis to Revelation, and I don't think you would find a guy in the Bible as messed up, dysfunctional, as far gone as this guy is. So let's read together. Who is this guy before Jesus? Starting in verse one. They came to the other side of the sea, (coughs) to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, A man with an unclean spirit, an unclean spirit. So the first thing we learn about this guy goes like this, that the man is demonized. The man's demonized. Now, let me try to clear up what is a major misconception among church folk as it relates to how demons and people interact with one another. And a lot of the misconception has to do with our English translation of the Greek, So in verse 15, if you look at how they describe this man, they describe him as demon-possessed. And that translation is not the best way to describe the Greek word that is translating. And I would even say, I think for a lot of modern readers, that it's actually a misleading way to translate it. So, and this is what I mean by that. I think when most of us hear the word demon-possessed, here's what we think. A guy involuntarily was invaded by a demon— and instantly and absolutely fell under the control of that demon. So I think this is our normal way of thinking about this. It's an instant, an absolute thing. We're invaded by a demon and all heck breaks loose. And that is not the way the Bible sees the interaction between uh, Satan, demons, and human beings. That's not the way they they see it. I think a better word to describe what's happening here, rather than using the word demon-possessed, is the word demonized. And the word demonization or demonize has built in it a very wide spectrum of how Satan and demons would interact with and influence and exert control over human beings. So demonization is the really wide spectrum. So over here in the Bible on, on the less extreme side, the ordinary side, like this is where Paul is going to say in Ephesians 4, if you, if you are angry and you sin, if you're angry in an ungodly way and you let the sun go down in that anger, like in other words, you don't repent of that anger and turn from that anger. If you're angry and you sin in that sort of a way, here's what you're doing, Paul says in Ephesians 4. You are giving an opportunity for the devil. So this is like ordinary demonic, like demonization in the ordinary way. Every time you and I, as a, as a follower of Jesus, if that's you in the room, When you willingly say yes to sin, here's what's happening. You are swinging the door of your life wide open and you are saying to Satan and his little minions, come on in and play. See, this is is the, the ordinary side of demonization. It's the everyday side. Every time we sin, in part, we are parlaying with and we are entertaining spiritual warfare in that moment. So that's one side of it, the ordinary side. And as you continue to say yes to Satan, yes to sin, yes to Satan, yes to sin, then you get to the point where you're this guy in, in Mark 5, where you're to the point way over on the other side, where like these demons have control over his vocal cords, where they have given him this supernatural strength where he can break chains. I mean, there's some weird stuff going on with this guy. And this is the full fruit of Opening the door to Satan and keeping that door open and entertaining him and saying yes to him and submitting to him, never seeking to turn and repent. This is the full fruit of what that looks like. And our man is trapped in the door at this point. He is under the control of Satan. And if you keep reading here, when Jesus asked the demon for his name, he says, Legion. Now, legion is a military, Roman military term that could be used, depending on the time it was used, to describe a Roman army of 3,000 all the way to 6,000. And I don't think the demon is trying to say we're 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, or 6,000. I think he's trying to say this. There's a lot of us in here. This dude is in bad shape is where this guy is. See, so you get in the picture of where this guy, where he is? He has said yes to sin and Satan for so long that he is in bondage to, to the devil and demons. Absolute bondage. This guy is in terrible shape. The first thing we learn about him is he's demonized. Here's the second thing we learn. Look at verse three. It says he lived among the tombs. So you can just read those few words and we could probably conclude something like this. This man is out of his mind. This guy's crazy is what this guy is. So just picture, picture a moment where I bring up and we'll just say his name is Bill. I bring up Bill and I introduce Bill to you. And you start small talk with Bill. And you say, Bill, where, where do you live? What do you do? You know, and he says, well, I live the south side of town. And uh, you say, well, like, is, what neighborhood is that on the south side of town? And he says, uh, well, it's the, the, the cemetery right down there. And, and you say, like, right by the cemetery? And he says, no, like, I'm in the cemetery. Like that gazebo right in the middle of it, that's my house right there. Now, if we just got that far, we would all agree right there in the conversation that Bill's got problems. Like there is something wrong, like things are going like this in Bill's brain. We would automatically get there that he has got some problems going on. Like we have got some, some pictures of reality that are just not meshing up with the way things are. But Luke adds an interesting detail that it's not just that this guy lived among the tombs, that this guy was naked. So let's just re- redo this whole introduction. Not. not not only is this guy living in the tombs, when I introduce him, this guy is naked and he's living among the tombs. Can we all just agree this guy's got problems? His picture of like what reality is, is not a real picture of reality. Uh, he has got, there, there are some things in his brain that are not tightened down. Are we seeing that? I mean, the Bible is going to great lengths to help you see that this guy is far gone. That there are some things that are not working right in this guy's head. Keep going here. Verse three he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. so maybe we could say it this way that this man is dangerous. He is so dangerous that the townspeople looked at this man and said. He would be safer for us and likely safer for him if we chained him up. Are, are you seeing that? They're looking at this saying, this guy's going to be safer to everyone, society and himself, if we can get some chains on his wrists and legs and keep this man subdued. But, but this guy is not only that dangerous, he also is that pow- so powerful that he can, like this is supernatural strength here, right, that he can break these chains on a whim, this is the sort of dangerous situation this guy's in, everyone around him is in. If you, lived, if you were part of the town folk, you lived in the town near this guy and you had kids, you would, you would look at your kids, you would sit them down and you would look at your kids and you'd say this, don't you, get, don't you dare go near that guy. You do not find yourself over by the tombs. You stay away from the That guy will kill you. This is the conversation you'd have with your kids. This guy is crazy. He's out of his mind. And on top of that, this guy is dangerous. He is out of control. But then we see one more picture here. Look at verse 5. And this is probably the saddest of all. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. We could also say this about the guy, that he was tormented. That this guy had no peace in his life no joy in his life. He was in constant torment to the point that he was constantly night and day crying out. Luke says, screaming, constantly night and day. Even to the point where he would have this overwhelming compulsion to cut himself. Now I wanna take just a, a brief caveat, kind of a sidestep here and address this whole phenomenon of cutting, uh, people cutting themselves And it was interesting to me in in student ministry, I did student ministry for eight years, and I was shocked at how many cases of this that came along in our student ministry of like seventh, eighth, ninth grade boys and girls cutting themselves. I had never heard of that or seen that until I got in the world of student ministry um, at my previous church. And I, I wanna make sure that you don't take this passage and weaponize it and turn it on an unsuspecting person. And so let me, let me just as clearly as I can say this, that it would be wrong to equate on a one-to-one level, a person that's cutting themselves, so obviously we need to cast a demon out of this person. That would be a wrong conclusion to come to. So let me, let me just say it this way, that um, cutting has a lot, of, a lot of things underneath it. It's a complicated thing. There's many layers to that. And I don't want you to weaponize this, this passage and just turn that on a person as if this passage is saying, if a person's cutting himself, there is a demon that's gotta be cast out of them. That, that's not what the Bible's saying. So I just wanna throw that out, just hopefully for an unsuspecting person later on that this passage doesn't get turned on them. But, but you see the picture that the Bible is trying to create of this man. The Bible is going to great lengths to describe him in the worst possible ways. Like, you know, I think you could read this so far and you might say stuff like this. This guy is in a desperate situation. He is as bad as it gets. He is seemingly, if you read this on the surface, beyond the grace of God. Like if he was in your life or my life, he's probably one of those guys that you would have written off thinking, he is too far gone. He is too hard-hearted. He has let himself go too far to sin and Satan. I think we, we would probably, most of us in this room, have written him off and we would be thinking this. Man, the only thing separating this guy from, from, from hell is a few short days. But that's it, his death. And this guy's done. He, he's, he's gone. He is beyond grace. I think that, that would be the feel that you get from reading this. But but this man had no idea when he woke up on this unsuspecting morning that he was about to meet the man who could calm the wind and the waves with a word. He had no idea. And so here is the after. That's the before. This is the after. Who is this man after, Jesus? Look at verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15 say this. The herdsman fled... And told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that happened. Verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. The demonized man. The one who had the legion. It's like they all know this. This is the guy that had demon problems. This is the guy that was crazy. This was the guy that was out of his mind. This is the guy that was dangerous. This is that guy who was constantly tormented the one who had the legion, and this is what they saw. He was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Now, can, I, can we just kind of make sure we're seeing the details of that? He's clothed in his right mind. So the before is he's demonized, he's dangerous, he's tormented internally, he's out of his mind, no self-control, out of control, that's him. And now the, the after shot, is this guy's like, he's actually got clothes on. I mean, that, that's a big step right here. He's actually sitting down, he's talking with Jesus, and this guy's in his right mind. Welcome to the difference the gospel of Jesus Christ can make in a person's life. Man, can, can we just sit right here for a moment and ask God to let us see this? This is what grace does to people. This is what the mercy of Jesus does to people. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does to people. It changes them like that. Out of control, in control. Out of their mind, in their mind. Demonized to the extreme. Now they're sitting there talking with Jesus. This is the difference Jesus can make in a person's life. Like, like what we're seeing in this passage is a Jesus who loves to seek and save people who are lost. What, what we're seeing here is a Jesus who loves to put his foot in the boat, sail to the far country, and heal people just like this. I mean, can we just breathe deeply and inhale that sort of gospel, grace, mercy, that sort of air into our lungs? He was this, he meets Jesus, gets confronted with grace, experiences mercy, and now he's that. So two things I think this story is trying to teach us. Two things. Two things we have here. Here's the first thing I think the Bible, God is trying to teach us in these 20 verses. Number one, that Jesus loves to save the unsavable. Are we seeing that here. That Jesus loves to love the unlovable. Like those that, that you, would, you would swear they are beyond redemption. God loves to redeem them. That, that you, would, you, you would just know deep down in your gut that they are beyond rescue, beyond grace. God loves to come after them and rescue them. That God loves to take the worst of the worst, to track them down, to woo and win their heart to marry them through his son, Jesus, to pledge himself to be a father for them for the rest of all eternity. He loves to do that. He loves to meet people right in the middle of their brokenness, right in the middle of their shame, right in the middle of the ugliness of their sin. He loves that, that we have a God in his grace who loves to save the unsavable. See, this has been years ago. I was listening to a sermon by Matt Chandler and he, he is the, the president of our church planting network called Acts 29. He's a pastor of a church on the north side of the metro, uh, metroplex called The Village. And he was describing this scene. This has been years ago. Describing this scene where uh, this was in his college days. He was in a class and he got to know a girl in that class that had just a terrible past. She was very promiscuous. So she bounced from this guy to that guy, to that guy, to that guy, to that guy. I mean, just as broken sexually as, as you could be. And so he gets to know her, kind of extends a friendship to her. And one night, his group of friends were all going to this big youth ministry event where this well-known guy was going to be preaching that night. And they asked this lady to go with him. So, so this girl, promiscuous, broken sexually, comes along with uh, his group of friends and they get there and it's kind of like one of those true love wait sort of, you know, sermons where the, the point of the message, the big, the big idea is you should be sexually pure. That's the big idea that this guy's trying to get across, in, you know, in this moment. And in his big kind of illustration that was driving the message of you should, you know, be sexually pure, true love waits, you should wait. God would want you to wait. His big illustration to get that across was this illustration of a rose. So to start this sermon off, he, he's got this beautiful rose, and he's talking about the rose and how beautiful it is, how it smells so great, the delicacy of it, how it's, how it's a, a valued thing. It's a great thing. And then he takes the rose, and he throws it into the first row of junior high boys, and he, he tells them, you know, I, I want you to handle the rose. I want you to you know, you can smell it. You can, whatever you want to do with the rose. And then I want you to pass it on to the next guy. Let them see it, handle it, smell it, whatever they want to do and, and keep passing it around. In the climatic point of the sermon of this true love, weight, stay sexually pure, the, the climatic point of the sermon came a little bit later on when he asked for the rose back. And now you, you can imagine what the rose looks like after a bunch of junior high boys have put their hands on it, right? I mean, probably something about like this. Wouldn't we agree? something about like that. And so he, he stands up with this rose and it might've even done that. I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> he stands up with this rose and his big climactic point of true love waits, you, you, should, you should keep yourself sexually pure, was looking at this group of teenagers and saying, because seriously, who's gonna want a rose like that? I mean, who's going to want a rose that's been handled like that? That's been beaten up like that. Who's going to want a rose that is damaged goods like that? And Matt describes like this this moment of like looking over at this lady he had brought, that is that. In so many, I mean, sexually she is as broken as this rose is broken. And in that moment, he just, he, he describes like this overwhelming sense of anger, like rising up in him toward this preacher. And, and he's thinking about what just happened, like no, no one, want, like who, who would want that, communicated to this girl that it is that. And, and like this overwhelming sense of looking at this preacher saying, you just missed the entire point of the gospel. You just, you just missed it all. Like the point of the gospel is that Jesus wants that. Like the whole point of Jesus coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sin is God screaming with a megaphone of, I want roses that are beaten, tattered, damaged, just like that. That for all you in the room that are that, that that is who Jesus wants. And see, this is what we're seeing in Mark 5. That for every rose that has been beaten and tethered and ripped to shreds, what God is saying in Mark chapter 5 is I love them for some strange reason. He sets their affection on that person and says this, I love to enter into that brokenness with you and put it all back together. Like the point of the gospel is for every damaged rose out there to know that that is exactly what Who God wants. And to prove that for you, He slaughtered His Son so that He could have you. See, the, the point of the gospel is that Jesus loves to save the unsavable. Like He actually does have the mentality of I want to seek out and I want to save the lost, the damaged, the broken, the beyond repair, the seemingly beyond grace. That's who I want. Now, this is, this is the turn of the sermon right, right here. Because my experience in the world of church is that we can talk about like moments like this. We can talk about how God loves to come and rescue demonized people like our man in, in Mark 5. That he loves to come after broken roses and redeem them. But, but what I've noticed that in, in church world, like if you're Baptist, you're clapping, but you're clapping on the inside, not the outside, you know? But but what I've noticed is that for most of us in the church world, for whatever reason, that falls flat on us. It falls flat. I mean, what should be a mind-blowing confrontation with the amazing grace of God just falls flat on our soul. And can I tell you the reason that I think is back behind that? like why that is, like for right now in the room, although there's a little part of us clapping, our mind and heart isn't blown up by the grace of God in this moment. I think for a lot of us, the reason is that when we look at our life, we just don't really think we're that bad. We just have a hard time seeing that we're as bad and as in bad of shape as the the demonized guy in Mark 5. We have a hard time seeing that, that really before God, this is what you look like what I look like. We have a hard time seeing that. It's like when we look at the the demoniac in in Mark 5, we have this this view of, now that guy needs all caps, big, bold grace. That's what that guy needs. That dude is a varsity sinner right there. But but me, I I think for me, I could probably use like the, you know, kind of the, the grace in fine print. Kind of the, the smaller, not, not the bold variety, but just the normal variety. Kind of the, the, the grace that's kind of down there at the bottom, kind of meshed into the details. That's the sort of grace I would need. But that guy, he needs big grace. The, these sort of people, they need big grace. But me, small grace probably covers me. And, and can we just see today that one of the things the Bible is trying to tell us in this story in Mark 5 is that this man's story, his story, is all of our stories that his story is our story. That that we are just as bad off before God as the, the demonized man in Mark 5 is. And if you don't believe me, turn over to Ephesians chapter two. This is gonna be on the screen for you as well. But if you don't believe me, let me just prove that we are as bad off as that guy is, that we are in just as bad of shape as that guy is, that we are just as unsavable, just as unlovable, just as beyond rescue as he is. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 7 goes like this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead. Now that sort of sounds like we're living in a graveyard, doesn't it? That sort of sounds like we're living in the cemetery, that we are dead. God is saying this to us. You have no spiritual life in you. You are flatline spiritual. You don't have like one toe kicking somewhere down there. It's all dead. You are dead in your sin. You are in a spiritual graveyard. He keeps going. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who is the prince of the power of the air? Satan, right? So you you know what God's saying to us right here? That just like our demonized man in in Mark 5, we're all demonized. Like when we're born. But When you come out of the womb, you have this natural inclination deep in your soul to stiff arm God, to, to disregard God, to be indifferent to God and to run as fast as you can to the ways of Satan. See, what, what Ephesians 2 is telling all of us in here is that we are all born in captive. We are all born in a dungeon of Satan's. We are all born running to the wrong team. We are all born submitting to the wrong master. We are all born under the control and influence of the evil one. That is all of us. It's not just our Mark 5 guy. It's you and I too. He keeps going here. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Just like our demonized guy in Mark 5, we, just like him, the only thing standing between us and an eternity in hell is just a few short days. Our death is the only thing that separates us from it. That we, just like him, were on a collision course with the wrath of God over our sin, the fury of God. And that is not gonna end well for anyone who is confronted by that. But then look at verse 4. But God. Aren't we thankful for the but gods in the Bible? But God. This is, this is where you were going. Hell. You're under the control of, of Satan and his demons. You're in the graveyard spiritually. No life in you. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See so are we seeing this is not just the demonized guy's story? This is not just our man's story in Mark 5. This is your story. This is my story. That we are all born in that sort of condition. Graveyard, demonized, dangerous. Out of our mind. We're all born there. And if it wasn't but for the but God, we would be there today. Our only hope is the but God. Our only grace is this sort of rich mercy that has been extended toward us. Our only hope has been the grace of God that can actually save and rescue and redeem us, the unredeemable. And look at verse 6 and 7. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And I want to point out verse 7 to you. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, this isn't just our our Mark 5, that that man's story. It's your story. Like for all eternity, if you're in Christ, if God has saved you, this is going to be the story for all eternity. You're going to be put up on display for all eternity, for everyone in heaven to see. And there's going to be this moment where everyone looks at you and gasps and thinks this. That guy made it? That that girl made it? Are you serious? And you know what's going to be written over all of our lives? In big, bold, all caps letters, grace. And and listen to me. That's not just our demonized guy in Mark 5. It's not just our tethered rose girl. That is you if you're in Christ. See, there's not going to be anyone in heaven that written over your name is going to be in real fine print, small letters, grace. For every one of our life, big, bold, over our life says, but God, mercy, grace. That is all of our stories. And so so this is really the question of the morning. Are you living in that awareness? Are you living there? And and again, I'm just saying this, I'm asking this question because I've just been around church world people long enough to know most of us don't. This is why a lot of us are self-righteous. I can't believe they would do that. Really? I'm pretty sure you'd be able to do that apart from the grace of God. So I'm just asking the question, are you living in such a way that you are drinking deeply of who you were and who you are now and drinking deeply of the grace of God that has made that change. And men, mercy and grace, big all caps letters in your life. Now I want to end by giving you two ways to examine your heart in that. Like two ways for you to be able to look at your life and, and to help you answer the question, man, am I living with this sort of an awareness of the big, all caps grace of God? So look at uh, Mark 5, 18, 19, and 20. Here are two evidences, two things that if you're seeing these in your life, you can know that that is produced by grace, living in the awareness of grace. Here, here's the first one look at Mark 5, 18. So the guy's been healed, the demon's been cast out, he has been. Put back together, and this is what it says in verse 18. And as he was getting into the boat, Jesus, it was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, look at this last phrase, that he might be with him. If you want to know one of the fruits of you living totally aware of the grace of God in your life, here it is that you actually want to be with Jesus. Like there's something in you that says, I want more of Jesus. Like I want to pursue Jesus. I want to run after Jesus. That mainly comes through his word, through prayer, through gathering with, this, with the church family where we get to know Jesus more. But there's like this deep burning passion in you to get to know him. See, nobody had to tell this guy, hey, you should really want to be friends with Jesus. You should really want to get to know, they did have to tell him that. Why? Because a deep encounter with the grace and mercy of God naturally produces that. When we are drinking deeply of the the amazing grace of God, there is something that stirs up in us that says, I want to get to know that God more than I do right now. So see, maybe I could think about it, or you could think about it this way. If that is not there, like if right now there is not a burning desire to get to know Jesus more, just trace that backwards. If that is not there in your life, trace that down to your heart and the reason. And the reason that's not there over here in your life is because grace, for whatever reason, has been shrunk down from big, bold letters to the fine print of your life. To to really small, kind of down in the details somewhere. That's the reason. But when grace comes back into view as big and huge and amazing, then it naturally produces a desire in us to want to get to know Jesus more. So so just examine your own heart. Is a life of I want more of Jesus, is that characteristic of you? And here's the second evidence of living in the grace of God. Verse 19. And he did not permit himself, or he did not permit the man to come with him. This is from Jesus talking to the man. You can't come, he said. Instead, go home to your friends and tell them, How much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. When grace is big, all caps, letters in our life, and we're living under the awareness of just how gracious God has been to us, it produces in us a want to tell others about Jesus. That's what it produces. It is an inescapable fact in the Bible that deep encounters with the grace of God create missionaries. That that deep experiences of the grace of God create people who begin to want to extend that grace to others. There is no getting around that in the Bible. That deep experiences with grace produced that sort of missional life, that sort of missional impulse in us that says we have got to get that grace out that has totally changed me. We have got to get that out to other people. That's what the grace of God in us produces. When it comes into us, it's got to have like an outflow. An outflow is mission. Outflow is telling others about that grace of God that has impacted us. See, there's there's two ways that I could go about, or a preacher could go about, trying to get people to live on mission. Here's one way. The Bible says you should share your faith. So get to know your neighbors, love your neighbors, and share your faith with your neighbors and coworkers for crying out loud. That's one way. The, The other way goes like this. Can I just tell you what all Jesus has done for you? Can I just do everything I can to find the words to help bring that into view? All that God has done for you in Jesus. The sort of mercy and grace that he has extended towards you. Can we just get that into view today? And you know, you know what naturally happens when that comes into view? We naturally start telling other people about Jesus. I've used this several times in the past, but I had a friend, a friend a few years ago who tweeted this question. Why is it that we so often as believers are negligent, hesitant, and even resistant to talk about Jesus to people who don't know Jesus? Why is that? And in response to that question, a guy named Steve Timmis, he kind of does the Acts 29 Europe thing. He's a British guy from England, And, you know, I have to picture this in a thick English English accent when I see this. But he instantly responds back and answers that question with this. Because we are not deeply besotted with Jesus. Now, if I ever use the word besotted in a conversation with you, feel free to like punch me right there on the spot, right? I cannot pull off the word besotted, but he can in that thick English accent. And here's what it means to be obsessed with, infatuated with, intoxicated with. See, that, that, that's the reason that we are negligent, hesitant, and often resistant to talk about Jesus with others is because we're not besotted with what Jesus has done for us. That, that grace, for whatever reason, has been shrunk down to really small letters in our heart. So just trace this backwards. If, if right now, and I would assume this is probably most of us in the room, if we are not seeing the outflow of missional living, conversations with people who don't know Jesus about what Jesus has done in us and for us, how he has changed us, extended grace to us, if we're not seeing those conversations in our life, just make sure we're tracing that to the right thing, that the problem and the reason back behind that is that, that grace has become fine print for us. It's been lost in the details of our life. And can I just say the one thing I hope for us this morning is that God would resurrect grace from the details, from the fine print, and that over all of our life, we would see written these words, but God. We would see written this word, big, bold grace. That we would see written over our lives in big, bold, neon letters, mercy. Mercy. Man, I pray that God would give us eyes to see that. Amen? Why don't you pray with me? Let me give you a second to allow the Spirit of God to settle that over your heart in the ways that that your heart needs this morning. And if you're a person in the room this morning who you you know that you're not right with God, you know that you are far from God, you know that there's never been a moment where you have expressed faith in Jesus and trusted that God would would save you. There's never been a moment where you've stepped into that sort of a personal relationship with Jesus. Embedded into this passage this morning is a beautiful invitation for you. And the invitation goes like this. The grace of God is big enough to cover all of your sin, past, present, and future. And for all those who put their faith in Jesus, the fact that he lived a perfect life in place of your imperfect life, died on the cross for your sin, raised from the dead on the third day, for all those who put their faith in Jesus, God stands ready and willing to save right now in this moment. That's an unbelievable thing. That God is willing right now in this moment to take all of your sin and to transfer all of that sin to his perfect son, Jesus. And take Jesus' perfect record of righteousness. Transfer all of that to you. So that now when he looks at you, he sees you as his perfect son or daughter. So, so if that's you, I just want you to hear that that invitation exists this morning. It's there this morning. And we would love to celebrate that with you. A moment of you holding up your life and your hands to God and saying, God, God. I need you. Save me. God, I'm trusting Jesus right now in this moment. Save me. And God stands so willing to do that for you. And for those of you who have entered into this sort of personal relationship with Jesus, like Jesus has rescued you. He has redeemed you. I want to give you a second this morning to just sit and think. I think one of the reasons that grace can become details, fine print in our life, is we just don't take time to recall and to think. Like I love what Jesus asked this person to do. Go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. How he has had mercy and grace upon you. Go and tell them that. And and I I just want to change that a little bit this morning and just say this will you just remind yourself of that this morning? Will you just take a second in your own words, whatever sort of vocabulary that you would put on it, to just remind your own heart right now in this moment, all that God has done for you. For, for you to be able to remind yourself right now of the sort of mercy and grace, big, all caps, bold, that he has extended toward you. The truth is, is that for everyone in the room, we were the damaged rose. We were the rose that no one wanted. Why, why would they want it? We were the rose that had been handled, that had been broken, had been ripped to shreds, We were the damaged goods. And yet, for some unknown reason, God looked down in his grace and said, I want that one. That damaged rose right there. That one's mine. And he chased us down. He melted all resistance in our heart. And he adopted us into his family. And he looked at us and he said, I want that one as my son. I want that one as my daughter. I want them. The the damaged, the broken, the ripped to shred rose. I want them. It's like this unbelievable display of grace. And that is all of our stories. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas.